0: Today, believe it or not, is the first Sunday in May. I don't know about you, but that is really difficult for me to believe. <laughs> I feel like last night we were bringing in the new year, <laughs> uh, but in any case, we're now five months into the year of our Lord, 2021, uh, which again is is kind of difficult to believe. Uh, but uh, I wanted, as I, I was reflecting on that, reflecting on the fact that we're five months into the year, and among the many think that it means. For us, or for you perhaps, for us as a church, Stonington, uh, that means today, as the first Sunday of May, that means we we have the privilege uh, of celebrating and observing uh, the Lord's Supper. uh, As you might have noticed uh, in the the front of the uh, sanctuary this morning. Because as a New Testament church, we believe, uh, we uphold the two ordinances of a church, baptism and communion. And and for us, we do this once per month, every first uh, Sunday of the month. We honor and we celebrate what our Lord Jesus established in Luke chapter 22. If you want to read that, you can. Luke chapter 22 is the night before Jesus is about to be crucified. He establishes the Lord's Supper. The new covenant in my blood, he says... As a way of remembering exactly what he would do in a few short hours. Exactly what he would accomplish in order to save us. His body bruised for us. His his blood shed for us. This is what allows us to be here. Indeed, without that moment... Uh, sort of being commemorated, there would be no church at all. If without this sort of way of remembering uh, what there would be to sal- there, what he would soon accomplish for salvation, now we have this opportunity to remember it here this morning. We can debate and we can discuss. We can uh, talk about the frequency with which churches do this. Some churches do communion every week. Uh, They participate in the service on a weekly basis. Some do it once a quarter. Some do it once a month, as we do. Um, I don't think the frequency very much matters. What matters, and what I hope to sort of steer you towards this morning, is your heart. Your heart going into a service uh, such as communion is what's at stake. This is what matters most above all other things when we enter into the communion time and as we are passing out the elements of the Lord's Supper, the body or the bread and the cup. It's it's about your heart. I think that's really the, the main focus of the Apostle Paul's sort of treatment of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 as he's talking about what that sort of service means he, he's getting at the excuse the pun he's getting at the heart of the matter by focusing on how you approach a service like this is what matters most and this service is not just something we do it's not just a tradition it's not just uh, something we tack on to the end of the service once per month <laughs> This is central to what we believe as Christians. As what we believe as New Testament believers. As we corporately, unitedly recognize our desperate need for a savior. That's what's happening here. We are here recognizing that all of this. Would be useless. All of this wouldn't even be here without Jesus. Apart from what we are commemorating. Without this there is nothing. And we see this need before us. In services like this or we ought to. And we see also how Jesus perfectly met that need. He answered all of our deficiencies in himself, in his perfection. All of that was answered in him, Jesus Christ. Like we've been, like we've said before, there's this, there's this dual sort of tension going on in a communion time. One of solemnity because we know that our sins, as we just sang about, put him there. And that we were among the scoffers that mocked him and spit upon him as Jesus hung on that tree. So there's seriousness, there's some weightiness, but there's also a victory cry. There's a celebration because we know the truth of the story. That Jesus died and rose again and thereby accomplished our salvation. He is king forever and we have a celebration. So this service is one of serious solemnness but also one of celebration because we know that he is victorious. And his wounds have paid our ransom. That's what this bread and this cup are here to memorialize. They're here to get in our mind's eye all of those events. To use Christ's words from Luke 22. They're to get into our minds His body given for you and His blood shed for you. That's what we're here to remember. That's what we're here to have more firmly and deeply planted into our souls. And so... it. Just by way of even further introduction. If you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection as the means for your salvation. As as the way in which you are uh, saved from your sins. This supper is for you to remember that. To grow in your faith. It's not a a way you are saved. It's a way to remember how you are saved. It's a memorial service so to speak. But one of great celebration. Because it's a memorial service of a person who's not dead. (laughs) Of, of a person who's alive. Which is unlike any memorial service you've probably ever been to. But that's here what we're celebrating. To remind you of what he endured to accomplish your salvation. But as I was approaching this week and I was uh, thinking. Uh, yes, next week well, I hope to get back into our study in Kings. But I wanted to take one more week just to. Well, this was on my heart so I wanted to share it with you. Because I was thinking as I was approaching the service and thinking about the cross and, and, and thinking about the Lord's Supper. What, what moved Jesus to, to endure such atrocities? What motivated Jesus to accept his fate so to speak in terms of being nailed to the cross for the weight of the entire world's sin? What moved him to do that? You know, We often read of all those horrors that he endured. You can read especially John's treatment of the cross or Matthew's in the Gospels. And, and all of the untold agony that he suffered. All of the, the things that he endured. The, the beatings and the mockings and the scornings. And, and all of the, the blood that was ripped out of him. But I couldn't help but think. What motivated him to do all that? You know we have John 17 the quote high priestly prayer of Jesus where he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he is wrestling in that garden. He says that, and he's wrestling so much so that he's literally sweating uh, drops of blood because he's praying with such earnestness. We, we can talk about what exactly is going on between uh, the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ in that passage. But I tend to believe that this is a moment in which the full weight of what he's about to accomplish in a few short hours was most pressing upon him. That It's not just... Joe Schmoe's sin or or Susan's sin. It's the weights of the world's sin. Past, present and future is about to be laid on his shoulders. And he's going to die the death of everyone's sin. The just punishment for their horrible unholy retribution. That's what he was about to exhibit and execute. By being executed on the cross. We have that which is before us. But when Jesus says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What moved him to say that? Well, you probably have a number of responses. And they're probably likely good. But I would submit that I think the best answer we could give to that question. What motivated Jesus to go to the cross is answered for us here in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is a... Really interesting book. It has 48 chapters and you probably understand maybe two of them. It's a very curious book. It's one of the least visited books of the Bible. We don't often hear a lot of Bible studies from it. We don't like to visit it perhaps because it has a difficult message. But it's also a message that's difficult to understand. He, he talks and covers a lot of ground concerning Israel's rebellion and what's going to happen. There's end times prophecies. There's a lot of apocalyptic narratives. There's some other narratives that have already accomplished it. It covers so much ground it's kind of hard to keep track of everything that Ezekiel is going through. Which basically is sort of its legacy as a book. It's sort of just been material for theological debate. Which is... Kind of sad in some regard, but I'm not here to try and resolve all those things. I I can't resolve all the troublesome passages of Ecclesiastes in an hour. What I want to do is I want to show you that within this troublesome, often obscure, sometimes really coarse prophecy is, I think, one of the clearest motivations as to why Jesus submitted to the gruesomeness of the cross. It's right here, I think, in Ezekiel 36. You're there. This chapter is one of the more positive chapters in the Bible in terms of its message. And it concerns, it's a a prophecy of Israel's eventual restoration. This sort of thing kind of turned in chapter 34. But notice verse 16, which Pastor Nathan read... Uh, Because here, in verse 16, down through verse 21, God, through his prophet Ezekiel, reminds Israel of why all of their hardship had occurred. Notice verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, and they defiled it by their own way, and by their own doings, their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they had said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land." But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. All of those horrible atrocities that came upon Israel through exile, through estrangement, through horrible situations. They were made to feel precisely because they had chosen to go their own way. They had chosen to serve other gods. They had chosen to actually now profane God's holy name. Did you see that in verse 21 or 20 through 22? He mentions it three times. He's he's belaboring the point. This is because of what you have done. It's the punishment, so to speak, for what you have done to my holy name. They have profaned my holy name, verse 20. Verse 21, they have profaned my name among the heathen whither they went. Verse 22, they have profaned among the heathen whither they went my holy name. They developed a really pitiful testimony Israel had. God's very people were known as the people of the Lord and they weren't living in any way that constituted living for the Lord. Verse 20, uh, uh, what is their reputation? These are the people of the Lord and they've gone forth out of his land. It's almost like they're God's chosen people? Look at how they're living. Look at how they're polluting, profaning, they're defiling and they're desecrating their God's name. What a horrible testimony. You see, the way in which Israel was living was reflecting on their God. Their actions, their faithfulness, or we could say their unfaithfulness, was reflecting, was a mirror towards God. And now God's name was being polluted in the mouths of the heathen. Those who didn't know the Lord, they had no uh, sort of wanting or desire to be known of the Lord. Because of who? Because of Israel. They were living according to their own way. Not according to God's holiness. Their conduct was was seen as a black mark, a blight on God's very character. When when someone says something to you and you're offended... (laughs) Your, your name is, is perhaps uh, uh, drugged through the mud. And your integrity is called into question. You get rightly uh, sort of offended at that. We, we want to vindicate ourselves and defend ourselves. To clear our name so to speak. Multiply that times a billion. And you would still have only calculated a small fraction of how offensive sin is in the face of a holy God. And yet Here this is what his own people have been doing. So, they're not just going their own way, they're turning people, other people, away from Him too. They're turning other people away from God by the way in which they're living. And such is this scene that's before us. You have God's chosen people living in a very unholy, profane manner before Him and before the nations. And what's God's response to all this? How does, how does he respond? What does he promise to do to these people who are so defiling his holiness? This offense certainly deserved even more fury. As he's already said, I've, I've poured this out on them. It deserved even more punishment. But notice, in response to all of this. In response to to this specific situation, the Lord does perhaps the most unexpected thing imaginable. Notice what he says. Notice what he promises to do in verse 23. I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart, and out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God." I will also save you from all your uncleannesses. And I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field. That ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. And shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God. In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. Thus Say, the Lord God, I will yet be inquired, for, uh, be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Totally Unexpected. He doesn't lay down even more uh, uh, the hand of justice. What does he say? I am going to turn towards you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to settle you. And I'm going to be your God. Actually, one of the most... Fascinating things you can study from chapter 34 through about 37 or so. Uh, you can uh, just notice how many times the words I will appear. I will do this. I will accomplish that. I will bring you. I will take you. I will save you. I will cleanse you. I will clean you. And in fact, in just the words that we just read, that phrase I will, that, that God Himself declares, occurs 24 times. Promising something that he will accomplish on their behalf. And each one constitutes his redemptive heart for them. It it, it constitutes his restorative declaration for his very people. I will do this and I will bring you out. In verse 24. If you... Notice, if you remember, I will take you from the heathen. I'm going to snatch you out of the land of your exile, and I will bring you back into your own land. I'm restoring you to the land of promise. Verses 25 and 29 are even more remarkable. These filthy, unclean, unholy people are going to be made clean. All of that is going to be removed. All of that is going to be cleansed. And they will be clean, he says. I will do it. They're not bathing themselves. He's washing them. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. And ye shall be clean from all your filthiness. The time of their famine... Would be over. As he promised in verses 29 and 30. All the, the multiplication of, of fruit and harvest of the fields. All of that. Is the promise of increase. The promise of blessing. No more would they, they feel the sorrowful effects of their desolation and their ruin. But as is gloriously foretold in verse 33. All of those, those waste places are going to be Rebuilt. I love that in verse 36 where he says, I, the Lord, build the ruined places and restore them. And it's not just he restores them as you would get sort of an old piece of furniture at a yard sale and you restore it. He makes it new again. So new, in fact, that the testimony of all the people around them, that this reminds us of the Garden of Eden. (laughs) We want to talk about restoration. This is the restoration of what God does in his world, in his people, as he restores them to Edenic glory, if you will permit me to say that. The glory and the greatness and the joy of of the Garden of Eden is what God is promising for his people. That's... That ought to blow your minds in terms of how he's restoring us. He's not just putting a band-aid on the horribleness that we've caused with our sins. He's restoring us to the glory of Eden. Can you imagine? This is what is at the heart of redemption. At the heart of what God wants to do through unholy sinners. And he wants to bring them back to the joy and the fellowship and the, and the awesome communion of Eden. This is the the results of this plan of redemption, but again, what moved him to say this? what, what motivated, what motivated this, this, this execution of this plan of redemption and restoration to such uh, amazing and unfathomable degrees? Well, I skipped some verses which you may have noticed, and that was intentional is just to build some tension. <laughs> You could have read them and spoiled it. Look at verse 22. Notice what he says to Ezekiel. Notice what he says to him. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God. I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake Which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went, and I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, and saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. And notice verse thirty-two. He declares essentially the same thing. Verse thirty-two: Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. He's wanting them to see that it's not because of them. It's not because they've given him something in which to be motivated by. He's moved by his holiness. Because he wants to vindicate his holy name. As we've already seen. This name of God and his holiness had been profane and polluted in the mouths of the heathen minds of all those who are around them. So what is God determined to do? I will take it upon myself to sanctify my name. You've polluted it, I'm going to make it holy again. You've profaned it, I'm going to bring it and raise it and restore it back up to the heights of what it deserves. And to the heights of my holiness. Precisely because he wants everyone to see who he is. Verse 23 and verse 38. That I am the Lord. That's his motivation. (laughs) He takes the initiative... He takes all of the initiative in loving those who are unlovable and dealing gently with those who deserved even more wrath and sanctifying and making holy those who are poor and wretched and miserable sinners. It's the, the, that benevolent action springs out of him. There's nothing in us that moves him save for our own desperation. As the great reformer Martin Luther says, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. It springs out of him and his holy motivation to bring these people back into his holy fold you might say. But even more than that, if you can imagine it gets better, how he determines to sanctify his great name is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the good news. At the heart of what we come here this morning on a morning like this to celebrate communion. This is what it's all about. Because you see, had... Judgment's been the only way that people could see God's holiness, this, this righteous fury and severity would have never stopped. Israel's horrible and, and awful effects would continue. The breach of God's holiness demands a penalty as infinite as God's holiness itself. It would demand something equal to that bar. But in the divine wisdom of the one true God. Comes a better, a richer, a fuller demonstration of his holiness. And it's not by just exacting more punishment. On his people for their unholiness. You know how it happens? It happens because he makes Holy those who are utterly unholy and utterly undeserving. This is how he he manifests his holiness for the world to see. By taking poor, wretched, miserable sinners and exalting them to the place of saints. Taking horrible, wretched, retributive insurrectionists and making them part of the family of God. Making them and restoring them to the glory of Eden and the fellowship that existed there. This is sort of the net result of all of those I wills. I'm going to show you more about me by bringing unholiness and making it holy, by transforming all of that sin and making it righteous. This is the mystery of redemption that reveals so much more about who our God is. You you may know me. I have to quote this guy. (laughs) He's my favorite writer. He's an old Scotsman back from the uh, 1800s. His name is Horatius Bonar. (laughs) Listen to this. I can't say it better, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, a world that is unfallen reveals but half of God. The deep recesses of his character only come out in connection with a world that has fallen. The heights and the depths of his infinite nature were not manifested till that which opposed to them occurred to bring them forth. To learn what holiness is and how holy God is, we need not merely see his feelings towards the holy, but towards the unholy. This is what reveals an even more dimension of his holiness because he deals with unholiness in a perfectly righteous way. By by redeeming all these profane wretched sinners and making them holy. He reveals and he opens up to the whole world demonstrating more of his boundless love and mercy and grace to people who totally did not deserve it. They deserved something else. But he's moved with a gracious Holiness, a righteous grace, you could say, which sees us, sees his people, sees sinners where, in the midst of their ruin, in the midst of their horrible wretchedness, uh, by their own choosing. That they chose, it's the end that they decided upon. And instead, instead of obliterating them, as was his right. And instead of leaving them there, leaving them in their sin as he could have done. He puts himself under the law's demands. And takes on that punishment for his people. The very punishment that we deserved. See, then he upholds his holiness and he freely dispenses his grace because all of the demands of his holiness have been met in the person of Jesus who endured all of the brunt of our sin, all of the wrath for all of our retribution. He took it all and now freely dispensed from that cross is this favor upon sinners which redeems them and pulls them out of the pits of darkness and raises them up to the heights of his holiness. Now we have The full scheme of this marvelous grace. Because it's holy and it's gracious. At the same time he upholds and vindicates his holy name. And yet freely bestows upon people the ends which they did not deserve. The, the very opposite of what they deserve is what they got. Instead of being dealt with more judgment, he came and snatched them out of their exile freely by his own will. I will do this. This is, to me, what is so moving. God puts himself in the gap, in the void of holiness, unfulfilled, undone by us. He puts himself in that gap and fulfills all righteousness by himself. I have promised to do this and I will do this. The, the, the glory of Eden that was broken and ruined at the fall all the way back in Genesis 3 has now been restored because of Jesus and his death and resurrection and ascension. He has lived the perfect life and offered this holiness to everyone as a free gift. Can you imagine? this is what he's saying. I'm going to accomplish. That breach of holiness. I'm going to repair it myself. That law that demands a holy and just judgment. I'm going to feel all the effects of it in my own self. I'm going to appease the law's demands. By sacrificing my own body on the tree. And now by faith. Sinners. Wretched, polluted, profaning sinners are transformed into saints precisely because the one who did not know sin did not have anything to do with sin was made sin for us. You see, my friends, this is what makes this gospel so incredibly good. It's good news. It's the evangel that comes from God. It's an evangel, it's a good news that no other religion in the world has Why? Because it pronounces that God himself the one who has made the law and its demands has come down and put himself under them for your behalf and for mine and we aren't called to anything but other than witness this event and say I believe because he has done it. He says I will do this. He puts himself there and he makes it free for once and for all for everyone to find their remission of sins in him there's no scratching and clawing our way to get out of sin he says I will do it if you believe in me I have already done it if you believe in what I have done it's already accomplished for you because I have lived and died in your place this is a message that's totally unworldly (laughs) No one could have ever imagined a concept such as this. A God of holiness feeling the effects that unholiness deserved. And this is what God does. This is why I am so passionate about this scripture. Because it tells this message. No amount of penances, no amount of prayers, no amount of good deeds, no amount of anything you could ever conjure in yourself will pay the debt of sin you owe, which we just sung about. It is all because of what this holy God did on an unholy cross, whereby he secured holiness for unholy people. This is the gospel Motivated by God's own holy name. He says, I will do it. I promised that this will come about and I will perform it. And therefore, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. The gift of holiness was thereby perfectly wrapped for you. And when you say, I believe, it is poured out onto you, clearing, as it says in Colossians, canceling the debt of sin that you owe, nailing it to the tree, and thereby declaring it no more rendered against you. See, this is what makes this is what makes the Bible so so just uncanny and unremarkable, or I should say, so remarkable, as it announces this. The God who cannot forget chooses to not remember your sins against you. The God who is perfectly just and holy announces that you have been cleared precisely because his son felt the verdict that your sin deserved. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them who are in him. When the gavel now comes down on your record, it says justified, cleared, uh, not guilty. Because someone took that verdict for you. Someone took that spot for you. This, This is the good news. It doesn't get any better than this. Inside my heart is smiling. And we can smile. And this is what we celebrate on the first Sunday of every month. That this is what happened. That when Jesus says, or that when God says to Ezekiel, I, the Lord, verse 36, have spoken it. And I will do it. It's here. It is done. It is finished. (laughs) This is what he has accomplished. What we are about to observe and celebrate. That all of these horrible effects that our, uh, ra- that our, that our uh, pollution and sin deserved he felt. And now we are redeemed. As it says elsewhere in that same chapter that I quoted. Actually let me go there. And we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Which is up there if I have to pick one of my favorite passages I'm just going to read verse 14 down through the end of the chapter for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all then we're we're all dead And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we know man after the flesh. Yea that we have known Christ after the flesh yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As we could insert in there, Ecclesi- Ezekiel thirty-six. All of those desolate places are rebuilt. All of those horrible uh, famine deserts have become like the Garden of Eden. Uh, Garden of Eden. They have become new, as he says. And all things are of God. Paul continues, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. And hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself. How? By not imputing their trespasses unto them. And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in the stead, Be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel. (laughs) By not imputing our trespasses against us. Why? Because they were imputed to Christ. That's how he sanctifies his holy name. By declaring holy those who are unholy. And by a holy Savior taking on all of our unholiness. By becoming sin for us. My friends, this just, this just gets me excited. <laughs> and not to as you as well. Because this is the gospel. As Paul here says, this is the ministry of reconciliation that now we are the ambassadors of we are all just like beat reporters announcing what has already been done look at that the cross is finished holiness is gifted to you eternal life is yours by repentance and faith it is yours because of christ we get to live our lives pointing to something that's done pointing to something that's accomplished pointing to the the one spot where the Father's deep love for us was perfectly manifested. The cross, where sin was vanquished and holiness was won. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.